Uh, space-time continuum's overrated. I've given it up. Pull yourself into this dimension just for another hour. Fine. <laughs> Fine. Welcome to The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book in Terry Pratchett's Discworld series mm-hmm. in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen-Young. And I'm Francine Carroll. Uh, today we're looking at the fourth part of The Cover of Magic, but it's our third episode on it because Terry Pratchett very inconsiderately did not predict this podcast and did not split it neatly into three. <laughs> so what we've got here is the... Um, close to the edge section of A Colour of Magic, which is the first book in the Discworld series. So we begin this little novella within the novel. Yes. In Krull. We're in Krull. The uh, arch astronomer is... Checking out his big flying fish. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's a rocket fish. Astrofish. 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 There's a lovely chat between the arch astronomer and the very talented craftsman who has made the shiny fish, Golden Eye, Silver Hand, Dactylos. There's lots of interesting stuff about Dactylos and some very good references to Greek mythology, but I want to first point out the fact that he is naked apart from a tall belt, so everything that happens in section, his he's only wearing a tall belt. <laughs> and a wrist abacus, right. which I love the idea of, by the way. I love the idea of a wrist I feel like a wrist abacus. abacus could genuinely be useful for me. Again, I love the idea of a wrist abacus, but you are not going to distract me from the fact the guy's penis is out. <laughs> Hey man, like, look for the entire. Just how it is. I know, but like, what if he goes to grab a screwdriver from his tool belt and misses? I think it would be more of a problem if he was putting it back in and missed. Like, just his penis is out for this conversation. It's making it very hard to take it seriously. And this is a very serious book about a. Oh yes. Round flat world on the back of four elephants on the back of a turtle swimming slowly through space. Right. But the golden eyes of uh, Dactylos, less distressingly, appeared to be. Looking into another world. So yeah, so I did a bit of research into what Dactylus is referencing. Oh yeah, I don't, do tell. Well, I don't carry a lot of oh. mythology knowledge in my mind, mm-hmm. but it's a reference to Daedalus from Greek mythology, who was imprisoned by the king of Crete, so no one else could benefit from his genius. Oh. And he made himself wings to escape with. And there's a nice bit here about Dactylus making himself basically a helicopter or some sort of flying machine right. to fly out of his uh, prison. Interesting. See, I did a bit of research as well, but it went in a different direction. It's um, concerning the fact he's called Goldeneye Silverhand mm. um, because his ex-employers cut bits off him to make sure he couldn't make the same things yes. for anybody else. Um, and the myth is reasonably widespread for various wonders of the earth um, that architects would have bits cut off. Yeah. Um, but they all seem to train back to the Taj Mahal these days. And as far as I can tell, there isn't any truth in the builders having their hands cut off or their eyes cut out or any of the things. Yeah. But um, it is a weirdly persisting myth, a weirdly persistent myth surrounding the Taj Mahal in particular. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. There was also a lure of the silver hand from the Welsh mythological cycle. So, it's, oh, yeah. so yeah, so the silver hand and the golden eye are both fairly established in mythology. But also there's a Michael Moorcock character who... There's no way Terry Pratchett didn't read a bunch of Michael Moorcock. Quorum of the Silver Hand, uh, which I think is from Aspect of Eternal Champion. Or I've never read any Moorcock. Have you not? No. I haven't read a lot of the more fancier stuff. I've read his sort of steampunky ones. 
but I first heard of him via Neil Gaiman because he's got a beautiful short story called One Life Furnished in Early Moorcock. Yeah. Which talks about being a kid but reading these amazing fantastical stories. And yes, that Quorum of the Silver Hand also had a jeweled golden eye, so I imagine there's some inspiration that oh, must yeah. come there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I should go and read that passage. So that's a fun, Anywho, yeah, sorry. <laughs> big pile of references. It is a big pile of references, all Quorum. in one briefly appearing craftsman. <laughs> Who is... Uh, about to get shot through the chest with an arrow poor bloke oh poor chappy you won't get better from that no he's finished his big shiny fish and gets killed he's finished his big shiny fish and gets killed but during the conversation we learn that the big shiny fish is to swim between worlds um, which is just a lovely image isn't it imagine a spaceship like a shimmering fish that would be that's much cooler isn't it yeah Yeah. we need to have a word with NASA (laughs) I'll write them uh, so we leave Kroll and go back to our wonderful two flower Rincewind, who are in a boat. They're in a boat. Bailing it out. Bailing it out. <laughs> they're, all, they're arguing now, which I think is um, the first time we see two flower properly peeved or oh. even a little bit annoyed at Rincewind. Uh, but it's as it turns out, because they've been stuck together for six months <laughs> since we last saw them. <laughs> Uh, they've been to the Hublands, they've sailed on the legendary dehydrated ocean at the in- part of the incredibly dry desert known as the Great Neff. Yeah, I wondered here um, if the Great Neff is a bit tenuous. I think I must have read this on a forum ages ago, but if Neff is Fen backwards, Fen's being a notoriously damp part of England. Uh, that would be a nice little connection. But possibly not, because Neff also just does sound vaguely... Fantasy-ish. Fantasy-ish and ancient Egyptian-ish, doesn't it? Like Nefertiti and all of that. So yeah. possibly not. That might be a bit of a spurious... Spurious connection. Yes. And uh, yes, as they argue, which is a nice bit, part of what they're arguing about is Two Flowers refer- rescued them from slavers. Mm-hmm. But in the process, they might now die of, you know, drowning. Falling, uh, falling over the edge, the edge of, the, of the, world. the world because the horizon is, as they point out, quickly shrinking. Mm. Which would be just a. Can you imagine that? Fuck. Like, <laughs> why is the horizon yeah. getting closer? It's quite an anxiety-inducing thought. Yeah. He says, "Look at the horizon." Two flowers squinted. Looks all right. Admittedly, there seems to be a bit less than there usually is. But it's a wonderful moment where Rincewind starts panicking about going over the edge, and Two Flower is sort of a. Well, we can't do anything about it, so why panic? Yes, it's kind of the the infuriating stoicism yes. of Two Flower, which you can't rationally argue against, but we all know someone a bit like that. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, well, you know, what will be will be. Like, yeah, well, fuck off, because I'm panicking and or angry and or... <laughs> Please react more with me. <laughs> but Rincewind's actually quite excited about possibly falling off the edge of the world and then seeing more worlds. Rincewind? No, Two Flower. Two Flower, right, yeah. Rincewind is That panicking. sounds like exactly what Rincewind would never want to do. <laughs> yeah. Also, Rincewind saves a p- frog at some point as they drift towards the edge of the world. Yeah. I do like the, uh, the term desultory bailing. Yeah. <laughs> so after they've rescued a leaky green frog, which was very sweet of him. They hit the edge of the world. Yes. And get rescued. Yes, they get rescued uh, and we are briefly... Taken uh, away to go and visit a lovely ship. Yes, uh, which is where Two Flower left his luggage behind, because this was where they escaped from, the Great Neff slavers. Yep. Um, which would be a 
terrible loss in most circumstances, but in this case, luckily, the luggage is sentient and... Homicidal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The captain, a thick-set man who wore the elbow turban, typical of a great neft tribesman, I rather like. Nobody likes burnt elbows. (laughs) No, I love the thought of an elbow turban. I might try and make them fashionable. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to imagine how they would be... Yeah, I'm trying to decide whether you'd wrap fabric around the elbow or if it would be like a little hat just on the... Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. So tit tape, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. They've probably got tit tape on the desk world. They would. They must have tit yeah. tape to keep their elbow turbans on. Maybe it's <laughs> not called tit tape. And uh, here, here we've got the excellent uh, Pratchett habit of giving a little bit of history and background to a character. He began his character as a sailor on the dehydrated ocean... And learned this and that and went through an interesting and rich life and then gets eaten by the luggage. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's the last we'll hear of him. <laughs> I do love the way he builds up these fantastic, like, Goldeneye, Silverhand, Dactylos as well and builds them up purely for them to get shot or eaten yeah. <laughs> on the next page. But it's kind of cool. It's kind of um, just a, a habit of practice to show yeah. the futility of everything. Like, just the... Yes, he did all of these marvellous... Oh, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> But also I like that he just suddenly goes into much de- like these sort of random intense bits of detail. And I think in later books, that description of the captain's life would have been a uh, footnote. But yes. He's not yeah. really doing footnotes yet. Apart from the one very big one in the first. Yeah. <laughs> like literally, has there been another one? No, there hasn't. So that makes me think more that it was a piss take fit- footnote. Like, yeah. He was like, and here's what some authors do horrendously and trash fantasy yeah <laughs> but it will become a footnotes will become a marvellous part of the Discord books as yeah. we go along and then in the same place we've kind of got the opposite thing where he goes um, the dehydrated ocean is a strange, pla- strange place but not so strange as it's fish and we never hear anything about that again yeah. <laughs> we just accept that, that what I would thing. consider to be necessary detail has been left out but <laughs> I, I but I always love reading about weird fish yeah like I do the, really the like super weird. deep sea Oh my god, deep sea fish are so cool. Oh, the latest David Attenborough um, Blue Planet. Yeah. With the deep sea fish. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm, I'm really excited. What? I've been busy. This, it was I'm like two years ago. <laughs> yeah, but I, didn't, I don't watch Blue Planet a lot. Oh, but, oh, but you must. I, I oh. struggle to concentrate. It does make me fall asleep, which I always yeah. feel awful for because David Attenborough's voice has a very soporific effect on me. Yes, it's too lulling for me. It is very lulling. I don't want television to lull me. Mm. All right, well, put on like a upbeat soundtrack and watch the fucking fish, though, because the undersea- the deep sea fish are amazing and horrendous and you won't believe you're on the same planet as them. That oh. sounds like a clickbait title. Oh, yeah. <laughs> These deep sea fish are so horrendous, you won't believe you share a planet with them. <laughs> Actually, that's a really nice clickbait title. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I did once get to go to a really good lecture on um, eyesight and deep sea fish and the fact that they've got a smaller amount of rods and cones in their eyes because there's not as much of a colour spectrum that deep uh, underwater because not as much light gets down. That so sounds excellent. But how, did, how did you end up going to a lecture on that, considering as far as I know, you've never taken a marine biology course? Oh, it was just a day of biology lectures I got to go to back when I was still at school because I was doing really well in science. So oh, I got cool. to go to London for a day of biology lectures. Oh, yeah. did you enjoy it? I The only one I really remember was the deep sea fish one, but that was okay. really cool. There's like a whole thing about how, you know, you have the fish with the lights. Yeah. And then there are some fish that have lights of a colour you don't normally find that deep. And so their species has evolved to have this extra set of rods and cones that most deep sea fish don't have. So they can just see each other's lights. And other fish can't see the lights at all because they're a different colour. Oh, that's mental. Yeah, it's amazing. 
And that's how they find each other to, you know, mate and hook up. But then some predator fish start to develop the ability to see these lights, which is yeah. like the anglerfish. Oh, that's like a... That's brilliant. Yeah. It's a, like a light show arms race. Yeah, yeah. I love it. There's a mix of eyesight and deep sea fish and bioluminescence. It was a really good lecture. Anyway, how did, how did we get on to deep sea fish? Oh, uh, we were the, about the dehydrated deep ocean, yeah, okay. um, which is actually super not relevant to anything else uh, because <laughs> the luggage then eats the captain and the ship, well, most of the ship. Yes, eventually the ship, yeah. Or they burn the ship because they're worried about the luggage. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, however, it turns out this slaver ship is history. Yep. And then we get back to uh, Rincewind and Two Flower and Tethys, who has rescued them. Yeah, and Tethys, uh, the name is again a reference to several things um tethys is the uh greek personification of the sea mm-hmm. and also the ice moon of saturn ah. both of which are relevant to this character because he's made of water and he turned to ice uh, as he was hurtling between planets yeah but i think the ice moon of saturn is named after the greek personification of the sea yeah, that would make sense. Anyway, so Fine. anyway, so they anyway they've been rescued by this troll who's made of water. Yeah, um, and sea troll. Sea troll, and he got there from another world, um, probably inaccurate in saying another planet, isn't it? Because a planet's probably a round thing. But he got there from another world, and that's why he's made of water, which is a little bit odd, even on the disc. Yes. So they're staring at him as a shimmering shoal of fish swim across his chest. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Francine briefly became Sean Connery. <laughs> um, and turns out water troll Tethys is looking after the circumfence, which is a super cool name for what it is. that goes around the world. Yeah, I like that a lot. And they get to uh, see the rainbow, which mm. is a lovely little rainbow generated around the edge of the world. Yeah, you had a going off it. description you liked of that, didn't you, with that? Oh, well, it's, it's less of that, but it's within the rainbow they can see the eighth colour which is the colour of magic. And hey, they said the name of the thing in Yay! the thing. Yay! Right near the end. Um, I love it. I love it when they say the name of the thing in the thing. Do you, do you, what else will they do it in? I don't know, more random ones. I uh, like name of the wind. Oh yeah, no, no, and that's like, cool. The yeah. wise man's fear that then gets used at some point. Yeah. Callum asked me to recommend him a fantasy series. Ooh. Yeah, so I recommended him. First, first I recommended name of the wind. Yeah. And I said, actually no. Because it's not You'll yet. be furious with me. Yeah. Start reading uh, Robin Hood. Oh, cool. So yeah. now he started on uh, the, the Assassin's Apprentice. Is that the first one? Yeah, I just started rereading them, so I'm on the third of that trilogy now. Because I was. In You're this. always whinging about how long a reading list you've got, and you've just restarted a fucking what is it, sixteen book series that you've already read twice. <laughs> yeah. I read a new, well, I read something off my to read file, and then I. So now I got, you're gonna read sixteen books, not on your to read file, and then <laughs> between trilogies, I'll read books off my to read file, and okay. you know. Discord books and put post-it notes in them. Yeah, okay, fine. Because but, podcasts. Yeah. Oh, I do fucking love Robin Hood. But anyway, yeah, so I've got him reading that, which makes me really happy because Fitz is like my favourite character ever. I love Fitz. Um, anywho. Oh, yeah, no, but we were talking about, uh, so A, yay, they said the name of the thing in the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they said the name of the thing. But also it's, they do one of my favourite comedy uh, techniques. Oh, yeah. Oh, I say they do. Terry Pratchett. They do, yeah. <laughs> Terry Pratchett uses one of my favourite comedy techniques here, which is this really, really beautiful highfalutin bit of description. Highfalutin, yeah. I love the technique, highfalutin. <laughs> and then um, ending it on a really deadpan note. You know, it was alive and glowing and vibrant, and it was the undisputed pigment of the imagination, because wherever it appeared, it was as if 
mere matter was a servant of the powers of the magical mind. It was enchantment itself. But Rincewind always thought it looked a sort of greenish purple. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> taking you on a ride into the stratosphere and then clump but, back to Earth with Rincewinds. And it becomes even slightly funnier because I don't know why purple is a funny word. If you use purple in a sentence that's meant to be a bit funny, it will become funnier. It is a bit of an odd word, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. purple. Um, it's something about the earth. It's about the all sound at the end. It's about su- nothing rhymes with it. Yeah. Huh. There are certain words that just are and sounds that are funny. Yeah. One eyed, one horn, flying purple, people leader. Yeah. So, sorry about that. Meanwhile. Where were we? Meanwhile. Meanwhile. <laughs> meanwhile, back in what we're meant to be talking about. Um, Two flower rinse wind gets a Tethys' little house. Oh, on the circumfence. And. That was a real-life sound effect for me, loudly turning a page. This is real real people looking at physical books. It's very excited. Yeah. They sit down, they have a glass of not just whiskey, but Glen Livid. Yeah. <laughs> He's furious, which is, uh, for, for people not familiar with whiskeys, is a play on Glen Livid, which is a um, scotch... Um, I used to serve quite a lot of that when I worked in a fancy hotel and I I discovered, much to my annoyance in that job, that the older the whiskey, the more it hurts when it gets in a cut in your hand. Oh, yeah. Um, And I always used to get these tiny little cuts when I opened bottles of old whiskey from the the foil you get on the cap. Yep. And so I was just constantly, whenever I poured anybody an expensive whiskey, you're going, there you go, sir. (laughs) Ow. (laughs) I worked somewhere that sold Laphroaig which is another popular Scotch single malt. Made of bog. Very boggy, very peaty. Uh, it smells like TCP. Doesn't it, though? I don't understand people who like peaty whiskies. No, but that particular one, I had a group of regulars on a Friday night and one of them would drink Laphroaig and then one of the others pointed out to me that it smelled of TCP and I <laughs> went, oh, that's why it's traumatising me. <laughs> gave me flashbacks to when I was cleaning out my nose piercing. <laughs> you had a nose piercing? Yeah, when I was like 14, 15, it, it, it didn't suit me. Anyway, <laughs> none of this is relevant. <laughs> so whiskey, Glenlivet, uh, which is a funny little thing, but then he explains that the whiskey is a reannual. Oh yeah, I can explain what that is because I'm not sure my brain's working in that many dimensions right now. So reannuals come up before they're planted because of an yep. unusual four-dimensional twist in their genes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Uh, the one, what they're drinking is not whiskey it's a vol nut wine um, that's actually distilled in two flowers home country ah. uh, and yes the idea is that they are planted to come up last year or in vol nut wine's case it could flourish as many as eight years prior to its seed actually being sown and sort of occasionally gives people insight into the future and reannuals come up again well, we, uh, I think in Mort okay. his family plants them cool and then I'm not sure if I'm not sure if they mentioned again in Guards Guards, but the the pork futures warehouse. Yes, is another one. There is a warehouse for pork that has been sold but has not yet come into being for yeah. it to slowly come into being. Clearly, Pratchett is kind of just tickled by the idea that I, I I think just the idea of like futures anyway. Yes, makes him slightly chuckle as it does me when I think about it, which is why I could never study economics properly. I think because every time I dr- every time I drill down into an e- economics subject, I'm like. Oh, but it's all bollocks. Yeah. None of this is real. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, the world is so fragile. <laughs> this is all just 
Yeah, no, no, it hurts my brain. Let's not think about that. <laughs> but Terry Pratchett does talk a lot about reality being particularly weak on the disc world, yeah. which is why these things work. Yeah, um, so we, we, we spent quite a long time bollocksing about on the circumference, don't we? Considering this is quite a small... It's a very small section, but they spend quite a long time with Tethys and... Yeah, um, I feel like it's a little bit rambly, to be honest. Not that I can really talk today. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit, there is a beautiful paragraph here I love that's the sort of exposition bit where they explain exactly what the circumference is and what's going to happen to Rincewind and Two Flower. Oh, yeah. Um, do you want to read it out? Yeah, yeah. Um, While the two men helped themselves to some more of the green wine, he told them about the circumference, the great effort that had been made to build it, and the ancient and wise kingdom of Kroll which had constructed it seven centuries before, and the seven navies that patrolled it constantly to keep it in repair and bring it salvage back to Kroll, and the manner in which Kroll had become a land of leisure ruled by the most learned seekers after knowledge, and the way in which they sought constantly to understand in every possible particular the wondrous complexity of the universe, and the way in which sailors marooned on the circumference were turned into slaves and usually had their tongue cut out. After some interjections at this point, he spoke in a friendly way on the futility of force, the impossibility of escaping from the island except by boat to one of the other 380 isles that lay between the island and Krull itself, all by leaping over the edge, and the high merit of muteness in comparison to, for example, death. There was a pause. <laughs> oh man, it's beautiful. It's it, it, it's one long run-on paragraph. It's a list. Which yeah, is another, another list, yeah. yeah. And, and lists are always funny. Yeah, and within that, actually, they've got he's used another kind of figure of rhetoric, which is uh, specifying numbers always sounds much cooler than just saying lots. Yeah. So or saying several. So it says the seven navies that patrolled it constantly. That's quite a common literary technique. Yes, yeah, so the three hundred and eighty islands. Yeah, instead of saying the lots of islands in between or the, the dozens of islands, like yeah. having a specific number is always very powerful. So it's like uh, seven men on a dead man's chest and stuff like that. Yes. Like, ev- ev- yeah. Hmm. Especially when it comes to seafaring stuff, apparently. I also really love just the way the paragraph lulls you into this false sense of reality yeah. of just, this is a nice island and they seek knowledge and this is what it is and you will be slaves. And the way the tone doesn't mm-hmm. change at all while the subject changes drastically. Yeah. And he doesn't like split it up into paragraphs with the after some interjections at this point or anything like you you kind of do a, a double take while you're reading yeah <laughs> no, the way he's talking had about, their tongues cut out wait what and he's, it's the fact that it's also not written as dialogue it's talking about what Teth has said but it's not giving the exact words yeah um, god he was good at writing wasn't he such a good writer and this is very much not one of my favourite books but I think that is one of my favourite passages I, uh, I like to be lulled into a false sense of security and then suddenly yeah. slavery well maybe not slavery yeah. not, a, not a big fan of slavery <laughs> neither is Two Flower no it's one of the only things he gets angry and upset about is slavery yeah um, we'll probably go into detail in when we get to interesting times rather than here yeah yeah. We, God, we, we keep referencing ahead to interesting times all the time when we're talking about this but it's it's really where you get Two Flower's character as a yeah. three dimensional being rather than a it's a much more interesting look at who Two Flower is. Yeah, he gets history. Actually, maybe you'd call it a four-dimensional being because you bring time into it in history. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Maybe I'm talking bullshit. Yeah, let's not do four dimensions. Okay. It makes my head hurt. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Rincewind gets very, very grumpy and he, it turns out he's not a big fan of slavery either and threatens to jump off the edge. So he gets dangled over the yeah, edge. Yeah, and uh, it turns out mm, maybe not after all. <laughs> and then we go into some more beautiful purple prose about the uh the the ridiculous universe in which this book exists yes uh 
So it's the, the or is it the, like those curious little pictures where the silhouette of an ornate glass suddenly becomes the outline of two faces seen behind him flipped into a whole new terrifying perspective. It's just the, oh, God, he was just so good at description, Joanna. There's a wonderful sort of, as this paragraph ends, which the head was slightly tilted, a huge ruby eye might have almost been a red supergiant that managed to shine at noonday below the elephant. Below the elephant. Cut off. And yeah, yeah it's the way it cuts <laughs> off, and then it goes back to the, yeah. the elephant. But it's just good. It's, it's it very is good. good. Isn't it's it? good. It's very good. Well done, um, Terry. Li- listeners, go back and reread this. This two pages, actually, I say two, three, two. If you've got the UK paper book, to two, three, four, and just just glory, just that. glory in in the enjoy <sighs> that little section of prose. Yeah, he's just this, oh man. There's also indubitably a flipper. Is also. So we have this moment of Rincewood being dangled off the edge and Tethys explaining that he has lived here on the edge. In italics. And I do like the fact that he keeps just sort of dramatically saying, here on the edge. Yeah, I'd like to imagine the kind of um, organ chord going in at this point. Yeah. Here on the edge. Hold on, let me see if I can find a sound. Dramatic organ reaction number four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here on the edge. I mean, that went on a bit longer than I thought. With thanks to Sound Effects Factory on YouTube. Beautiful. So yes, I like the fact that there there is definitely a sound effect behind yeah. those italics. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the only points where my brain goes into the same place that yours generally does when you're reading and kind of puts the cinematic effects into the book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, then there's a lovely little chat about um, the fact that Tethys is on the Discworld because he fell yeah. from another world. Yeah. And they have a lovely little chat about other worlds and the ones he saw on his way down before he landed on the disc. Yeah, it's just, oh, the infinite possibilities that... Well, even Tethys's world, which is a world that's ocean-based and the lands of the seas, and he was he would sail on land yachts to hunt shoals of deer and buffalo. Yeah. Do you, the... I, I know we'll come to this later, but um, two flower like being annoyed that he's never going to be able to see everything in the universe even if he sees everything on the disc um i kind of <laughs> i feel that way when i read this stuff from pratchett like his like his mind you can tell if he if he'd had infinite years on this earth he could have explored every one of these weird ass worlds that he was just briefly mentioning and it's like a little window into something it's nice to think in maybe other other versions of earth pratchett wrote <laughs> other versions of Discworlds and yeah. and wrote about the big wet world that Tethys lived on and somewhere in the capacious trousers of time <laughs> <laughs> and then yes anyway sorry what the god we are we are still dangling off the edge of the, well we're still we're, talking about te- the Tethys' other world and yeah. how we landed I fully dish. retract my earlier statement on Pratchett spending too long in this little hut because it's entirely my fault at this point um, <laughs> <laughs> we have spent too long in this little hut yeah. so move on yes let's move on um, to uh Disqu- uh, Rincewind and Two Flower attempting to escape the hut. So, yeah, so they're basically la- loudly, I'm guessing, planning to escape. Um, well, Tethys appears to be out. So, yeah, so this is where we Tethys turns up and catches them in the act of escaping. They fail, obviously. Yeah, and he's not angry. He's just disappointed or deeply hurt yes. after being uh, stabbed. 
uselessly with the scimitar. Obviously, he's made of water, so... He's also very upset that they've noticed that he's suffering from chronic tides. Yes. <laughs> Poor Tethys. Poor Tethys. He's quite, he's quite small now. Yes. Because... Uh, because of the tides. Because of the tides, you understand. Anyway, so then, uh, then they find out that they're going to be collected from the circumference and taken straight to Kroll. Yeah, and what came speeding across the sea towards them was... Uh, a, a, a hovercraft that's made of hydrophobic wizards all around the outside yes. which, which we worked out earlier could make one of our favourite bits of alliteration which is a hydrophobic hovercraft from Krull which is like yeah. double alliteration it's hydrophobic hover and then craft from Krull Krull yeah. hydrophobic Hydroph- hovercraft from Krull yeah your, your homework this week Joanna is to go and drink a bit of gin and then try and say that into a microphone for me <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a test recording I'll do it one per gin and tonic <laughs> We'll see how many gin and tonics it takes before I can't say hydrophobic hovercraft from Kroll. And I'll... <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're, anyway, we're, um, we're... We're on a disc powered by hydrophobes. Hydrophobes are explained as the wizards that have been brought up to, like, hate water. Yeah, they completely loathe water, trained on dehydrated water. And this is where, this is where uh, Two Flower gets pissed off, because you can wander across the disc all his life and not see everything there is to see. Yes, he's humble and very angry, of course. Yeah, <laughs> which is it, he does put it really nicely because that is kind of again how I feel when in so many things, which is I I, I covet immortality. I think more than most people I know, um, because yeah, I want to see and do all the stuff. I want to see and do all the stuff. I fucking hate cliffhangers. Um, I read that you can only read ten thousand books or so in your life, and that makes me furious. Um, and now I feel a lot worse about constantly rereading the same book. So no, I don't feel bad about that. Yeah, so I and like them. The 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 inevitable stomping of time upon my brain cells is something that fills me with enormous rage. Well, with that got dark. Yeah, <laughs> so but I, I don't understand. Like lots of people don't seem to want to be immortal. But hmm. uh, I would if it wasn't for the fact that the world is definitely going to end tragically in a horrific sort of climate change thing yeah, very soon. But the world won't end. The species will. Well, yes, but I'm um, part of the species. Yeah, no, you're not. You're immortal, though. You get mm. to live through the end of the species, and then you get to see the cool post-apocalypse world, which is my favourite kind of sci-fi when nature reclaims post-apocalypse. So, yeah, but all my favourite authors will be dead, so there won't be more new books to read. So, yeah, but then you can start on the back catalogue okay, of Earth, <laughs> which is substantial. <laughs> it's my main thing I worry about: is if there is an apocalypse, I'll end up not having enough reading material. Yeah. Well, it mm, depends on the apocalypse, I suppose, doesn't it? Where we, am I going to charge my Kindle? <laughs> I'm just saying. We, yeah, we, we would have to be... So Francie and I have obviously discussed, we're going to hang out at the end of the world. Oh yeah, I assume yeah. we're both immortal in this. Yes, yes. I'm not sure I would love being immortal on my own. I would, I'd still prefer it to dying, honestly. But no, I, I would uh, much prefer having somebody around and uh, we get on pretty well, so that's fine. Yeah, so we'll share a bunker, we'll make sure the bunker has a library. Yeah, I mean, we used to live together, that's basically the same thing as having to literally share the rest of time yeah it'd be fine yeah <laughs> i'm quite good at you know shooting things you may have to are you well oh, you the... do archery don't you awesome well that's good because i'm physically useless in almost every way <laughs> you can do the hoovering yeah. yay <laughs> anyway right so Fuck me um where are we we've planned up we've done our apocalypse plan we're still floating uh on this hydrophobic disc it turns out everyone's afraid of Rincewind because he's got the eighth great spell in his brain. Yeah, so it's, um, this is kind of a recurring thing with Rincewind that when people overestimate him, 
things just go worse for him. He much prefers to be considered the terrible, cowardly, terrible wizard he is. Yeah, <laughs> but people o- overestimate him because he survives a lot. Yeah, he survives a lot, and he's he's got the eight spell in his head in this book, and he's um, like just there's a lot of mistaken identity throughout his considerable yeah. career, and it's it, it is funny that it just keeps happening. People keep thinking he's. Yes, way he... more uh, capable than he is although yeah. maybe part of it is like because we all we see it from Rinswin's point of view maybe he's just got bad self-esteem because clearly he does have considerable talent in some areas on he's the... very good at surviving mm. he's definitely one of life's survivors which is um, something I admire in a mammal yes no I like that anyway we uh, we cut from the hydrophobes on their disc taking Rinswin and Tuflas Kroll yeah and we go deep deep sea uh, the Garana Trench that. which is like the Mariana Trench I guess yeah um, oh and cool. the, the description of the uh, the Garana Trench also has another lovely bit of alliteration and Pratchett's special brand of onomatopoeia which isn't actually onomatopoeia but is what a thing would sound like if it had a sound yes uh, so the, the long slow slide towards the distant ooze <laughs> and uh-huh. ooze being one of those words that if ooze made a sound it would sound like ooze. Yes. Much like susurration. And uh, what was the other one he likes? Uh, glitter. Oh, no. Uh, glisten. 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 Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a wonderful talk about how this horrific deep sea thing and terrified krakens. Mm. And then we realise that the luggage has turned up and eaten a kraken. Good old luggage. So he was a bit deep sea and is now wandering off from there to run through a jungle. Yeah. Um... He's, he's left a trail of destruction pointing edgewise, littered with broken lianas. Yeah, I'm not sure what lianas are, but there are also bewildered and angry oysters, which yeah. is a lovely mental image. I'm going to guess a liana is either a fruit or a fish. I'm going to go with... Okay. Oh, it's wrong on both counts. It's um, any of various long-stemmed woody vines that are rooted in the soil at ground level and use trees as well as other means of vertical support to climb up the canopy. So get access to well-needed areas of the forest. Right, so a leon is a plant. Yeah, it's a plant, it's a vine. Uh, Bewildered angry oysters. Um, Oh, here's another uh, example of highfalutin stuff, but then going back into uh, mundanity, although this is more of the kind of technical magic talk as well, which is uh, two two flower, pick something up and... um, and said, what is it anyway? And Rincewind said, Agendura's wand of utter negativity, said Rincewind. And I wish you'd stop waving it about. <laughs> it is a lovely example of it. And yeah, we get our first mention of Clatch, but it's described as monsoon haunted. And... Yeah, later on it becomes more of an allegory for uh, the Middle East. Yeah. Um, Which is fair enough, because it wasn't intended to be a series at this point. Yeah, it wasn't. I don't think at this point it was going to be a 44-book series. Yeah. Oh, I'm setting homework for myself. I want to find out whether Pratchett had, like, an extensive reference system for his own uh, universe stuff, because I know a lot of fantasy authors have to keep proper, like, in-depth filing of where this is what this was what the history of x was and i wonder whether how much of it he just kept in his head and winged it and how much he actually had a little filing system yeah because with this sort of series he could get away with that whereas something like game of thrones like yeah that has i know george R. R. martin did does have like quite an extensive referencing system because there's so many families yeah and characters like i have to take notes when i read game of thrones 
Do I get around by not rereading the Game of Thrones books? Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? At this point, when another one comes out, I'm not even... I mean, ugh, I mean, honestly, yes, obviously I'm going to fucking read it, but I'm going to have to reread Game of Thrones all the way through again to understand yeah. what's happening. Yep, I'm... Yeah. Or I could find some very good synopses somewhere. Someone must There's have done really good ones. There's always the TV series. That's going to take longer than rereading the fucking books. I managed to re-binge the entire TV series before the final one come out, came out in like two weeks. How? Did you it, sleep? I just had it on in the background all the time yeah, like huh. while I was cooking and stuff. Which I isn't. It makes it not so bad to watch, but it does all make so make the change in the quality of writing between from when they run out of source material a lot more obvious and All right. you could see it hit the point where they went shit we need a streamlined cut out <laughs> to be fair to be really correct about this I should be referring to it as the Song of Ice and Fire books because Game of Thrones is just the first book oh yeah but who gives a shit we might get tweets there are people who care <sighs> okay <laughs> <laughs> How did we get here? Uh, we were retconning because Clatch, because we're talking about uh, the the skin colour of the young woman we've just met, uh, which is not the polished blue-black of Monsoon Haunted Clatch, but is instead a jet black. The deep blue-black of midnight at the bottom of a cave. Yes. Um, and she's like a teenager, but seems to be one of the wizards here. And again, I feel like it's just another getting you a little bit attached to a character and spoiler alert. She doesn't get killed off, but like I don't think she comes back again, does she? No, I do really also like the name. He he asks what her name is, and she says, "My name is Immaterial." That's a pretty name, said Rince. <laughs> but she they find out they're being brought to Kroll. Um, they're going to have a lovely life there, but it's going to be quite short. So we get to Kroll. We get to Kroll. We get a bigger description of what Kroll looks like, which is yeah, which is quite cool. It's all just made out of like. Shipwreck. Oh, yeah, here I've got a little post it saying, Oh, I love this. <laughs> it was quite late at night when I got to this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's all, um, it's all made of ships and mortised together and converted into buildings. And, you know, I hate to criticize because this podcast is very much made from a place of love, but <laughs> <laughs> from a place of love is such a wanky thing. <laughs> it's, it's like a nice version of no offense. <laughs> comes from a face of love but you're up no damn it anyway you were saying that it came from a place of love but you were going to say something mean anyway yeah yeah no i'm gonna be an asshole um terry pratchett in the early discord books the description i don't i don't there's a lot of description of these big spaces and like you get it with the wormberg as well that i just don't think is very good mm-hmm. it gets a lot better and obviously he writes some beautiful prose describing some things like yeah. we're just ranted and raved about how yeah. good a passage was a few pages back but describing big places like Kroll I don't think he could quite imagine it or was exactly sure of how it was enough to describe it and so that's why I think I don't like the especially these first couple of Discworld books as much is I just don't think it quite creates enough of a mental image considering it's such a ridiculous thing that doesn't have this kind of round world equivalent yeah yeah. Do you think it's necessary for something that's so briefly relevant, though? Yeah, no, I guess not. Um, maybe maybe it's just a personal preference thing, as you said, but like, I felt he went a bit overboard like describing the hut, considering... 
See, I enjoy. Who cares? Um, <laughs> I like descriptions of minutia, though. Yeah. Oh, okay. I like tiny details. Yeah. But that. So I think some of it is definitely personal preference. So oh, I see. So like maybe if he'd put exactly this description, but then like said, and this little street was like this, and this little yeah. Yeah, or like something about how. Um, Economic status is reflected by where people live in the tiers or something. Like oh, okay. You yeah. just want a little mini world building, basically. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. And that would have been nice, but I didn't miss it while yeah. I was reading it. Yeah. Um, anyway. Mm. So we get to Kral and we, we get this description of Kral and it is this tiered yeah. land over the edge of the world and houses yeah. made of boats. And um, yeah, so Rincewind and Tufla get taken to their very fancy prison cell mm. with lots of gold and silk and stuff and lots of food. Yeah. Like candied sea urchin. Like candied sea urchin. Throwback. Throwback to the beginning of the book. Yeah. Earlier in the book, the patrician, when he was talking to the diplomat who dealt with the Aegean Empire Agatean stuff, Empire stuff. stuff uh, was eating like candied sea urchins and candied starfish. And my theory is that this was kind of a little hint to the idea that the patrician is even more well-connected and... Uh, within everything than is than is hinted at yes. uh, than is uh, stated obviously because yeah if he's got connections with Kroll then that's the other thing. everything isn't it like he's <laughs> that's on the edge yeah so that's that's a fun little callback there yeah what you were saying a second ago though about um, just making it sound more fantasy I feel um, yes yeah, although you're, pro- although you're there. oh no 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 you're you only you skip to the next page as would be traditional but um, <laughs> madness but, <laughs> you go three pages back first <laughs> um i feel like by this point he's kind of he's he's gotten into the story to the point where he's not really trying to be that much of a spoof of fantasy anymore do you get that idea yeah, but then there's some fun little sort of moments that are definitely like there happens to be a few elderly men covered in mysterious occult symbols yeah. watching. Yeah, that's true. So I think it's amazing. I don't think it's as hardcore fantasy parody as it was in, say, like the Wormberg section. Yeah. And the Belshamaroth section. Or possibly it is, and we just haven't read the fantasy. Or we've read the wrong fantasy. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But he's eating candied sea urchin because, as he quite rightly said, Joanna. He's in a really weirdly luxurious prison cell with all that gold and silk and stuff. Golden silk and stuff, and bowls and platters of lovely food and, and sea grapes, which are a kind of small jellyfish. Poor Rincewind. Yeah, <laughs> but there's um, two flowers quite accepting of all of this sea interesting seafood, mm. while Rincewind is sort of horrified by it and turns green when he realises he's been eating wine made of small jellyfish. Yeah. <laughs> so there's an implication that maybe this stuff is also quite normal in the Agatian Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because two flowers is oh, a culture shock, I imagine. Yeah. Um, but also two flowers is just generally very accepting of everything. That's that it, isn't it? it? Yeah, it could be either. Anyway, um, culture shock, I imagine, said two flower. What did you say your name was? To the other person in the room with them. I didn't. It's Garhatra. I'm just saying that now because I realised I hadn't tried and said it aloud before and it's quite a fun one. Yeah, I'm not going to try and say that aloud. Garhatra. Garhatra. Said in the voice of Matt Berry. <laughs> Why have we suddenly both become Matt Berry? Garhatra. <laughs> okay, one more. Garhatra. Beautiful. Anyway, we can talk about ducks. Ducks. You worked out the why this line is meant to be funny. So and there's this bit of dialogue. First, we were told we were going to be slaves. A base canard interrupted Garhatra. Garhatra. 
What's canard, said Two Flower. I think it's a kind of duck, said Rincewind from the far end of the long table. So a base canard is a bit of obscure French humour and it's slang meaning a hoax or a lie. Obviously the word canard means duck and it this comes this has but this term has come to mean a hoax or a lie because of some weird joke slash folk story involving someone half selling a duck. And in France. Then, so, in France. So you can blame the French for that one. <laughs> I am annoyed I had to Google why it was funny because I should have known that, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you know the weird old folk tales from old France? Well, I think it's a common enough thing that it's used in English. Okay. And like people have recognised yeah. this reference. Anyway, Gar Hartra is the guest master yes. at this posh prison cell they're staying in. And he's being filled in by two flower while Rincewind complains about the seaweed biscuits. Yes. Uh, but basically just showing that Rincewind at this point is becoming slightly hysterical, I think. Yes. He's, he's reached, as he sometimes does, the point of plateaued terror. Yeah. Where he just goes, giggle, giggle, seaweed biscuits, instead yeah. of, oh my God, let me out. <laughs> he's at that point he's at in uh, near the beginning um, he says, I'm so scared of you, my spine has turned to jelly. It's just that I'm suffering from an overdose of terror right yeah. now. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Back at that point, while Two Flower is just gently confused yeah. and trying to explain there's a distinct lack of consistency in how mm. we've been treated. Although Rincewind is shoved back onto the escalating terror um, mobile by being told they're going to be sacrificed mm. the next day. And he attempts to escape by throwing a bottle of wine at the guest master. Yeah. Who stops it midair. Good effort. Yep. Good magic. Good magic, yeah. So I'm guessing there's like a super duper amount of wizards in Kroll compared yeah. to... Because you never really come across it in the disc world, do you? Like a, just, well, just random wizards here and there. No, you don't. In later books, it's very much wizards train at the Unseen University in Ankh Warpork and that's it. Yeah. Or in the... the but they find that a lot later on mm. so there's no explanation of where or how these wizards trained and got all of their magical equipment yeah which is interesting because there must is there some although the Agatean Empire must have uh, something as well mustn't it because they've got wizards yeah yeah. so yeah, we'll come back to that. Uh, <laughs> we'll look at origins of wizards throughout Discworld as we go through the books yeah and here's two flowers cute little bit coming up again of but what do you want to sacrifice us for asked two flower you hardly know us <laughs> <laughs> that's not the point isn't it it's not very good one as a friend um, and I like how he here subverts a fantasy trope of the over explanation um, of two flower going but you haven't told us why we're being sacrificed and got Hartra going well it's not really worth it is it what with you being sacrificed in the morning yes <laughs> I do like that because usually you would go into the long monologue about blah blah and possibly while stroking a small furry animal mm, or a small mucous membraned animal in this part of the world I imagine yes I often sit with a jellyfish on my lap and laugh in a stinging leather chair <laughs> wiggle wiggle <laughs> Oh, a purring jellyfish is a wonderful image. <laughs> Squish. <laughs> when I become an aquatic supervillain, which is on my to-do list, yeah. I must make sure I've got a purring jellyfish. Uh, my next favourite bit of onomatopoeia comes um, when we pop back to the circumference here, because it goes, 
gling clang tang went the bells along the circumference. Yeah. <laughs> I love that because I never noticed that gling isn't a word. No, um, I think it's used in the disc world a little bit, but it is a beautiful bit of onomatopoeia that definitely should be more commonly used. Gling. <laughs> gling sounds like the noise a fruit machine makes. Yeah. Yeah, well done. Cool. So fruit machine bells. Mm around um, the edge of the world and uh, then yay luggage is back yeah so we're, we're at the circumference because we're building up to the luggage reappearing in our lives by showing it wrecking a bit of circumference wrecking a bit of circumference uh, and leaving the guard in that section hanging off the uh, fence for a bit and funnily enough developing hydrophobia and going to live in the great Neff uh, an area of the disc so dry that it actually had negative rainfall, which he nevertheless considered uncomfortably damp. Which I like. So we had that bit where the Great Neff was introduced earlier, mm. and it was a dehydrated desert with very. It was a dehydrated ocean with very weird fish. I like that there was just enough world building that it can come back again. Yes. Yeah. Without it being deeply, deeply explained. I'm quite upset we don't get to meet any of the fish from the dehydrated ocean of Great Neff. Yeah, but again, it's like, um, us is a word for this device as well. When you hint at something, but it's it's so bizarre that the hint is always going to be funnier than trying to explain it. Um, oh, yeah. What's the word for it? It's a TV trope, isn't it? It's, um, you say, oh, if you remember the Arm- armadillo incident or whatever and they'll yeah. hint at it throughout the whole series and like it's a pretty shitty trope in sitcoms obviously but it's quite funny if it's just used once somewhere yeah. like the weird fish of the dehydrated desert of the greener yes good point anyway so yeah we're back to Rincewind and Tuflar who are trying Rincewind, to escape again yeah, Rincewind suffering from Atavar's personal gravitational upset <laughs> which does sound like a very very posh term for some sort of toilet trouble <laughs> But actually, he's standing on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> Not on the toilet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and um, dur- during this kind of panicked and futile attempt at escape, uh, Rincewind's getting more and more annoyed at two flowers. Is stoicism the right word, or is it more kind of a Zen Buddhism? I don't know, because I'm not... I don't know enough about either philosophy. Yeah. If, I would... if only you'd stuck out your A-level for the last five weeks of it. Yeah, but the last five weeks were meant to be the bit where I passed the test. Oh, I, oh no, I see where you left, yeah. To be fair, I probably could have passed the test, but also it was ten years ago and I don't remember any of it now. Yeah, yeah we were very drunk that, yeah. Yeah, that was partly why I didn't do the A-level. <laughs> anyway, ignore, stay in school, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise you'll spend a Monday afternoon rambling painfully about dehydrated desert fish. This is not painful rambling. I'm quite enjoying the rambling. Oh, yeah, no, not painful for us. No, painful <laughs> for the listeners. And painful for you editing. But um, Two Flowers Stoicism, or Zen Buddhism, whatever you want to call it, if you know about philosophy. Two Flower being super chill about everything. Yeah, it's quite interesting in that you don't often get characters like that that aren't, like, manly man stoic. Yeah, this is a... Or, 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 like, tough woman stoic, kind of... The the pacifist stoicism you don't yeah. often get in a protagonist. The, I expect something will turn up. Yeah. And it's a very nice sort of meta-commentary on the story, because of course something's going yeah, to turn yeah. up and <laughs> sacrificed. Yeah, because oh, you're not going to end the story with two flowerings and getting sacrificed. Spoilers, sorry. Spoilers for Why the Why didn't book you read this before listening? <laughs> Spoilers for the book we're ten pages away from the end of. Yeah, well... Anyway, so um, at this point we get the talking frog. 
that magically transforms into a frog. Yeah, sorry. Um, so there's a, a and again, your favourite device here of the ridiculously overblown description of the room darkened. There was a windy, roaring sound. Streamers of green, purple, and octarine cloud appeared out of nowhere and began to spiral rapidly towards the recumbent amphibian and it goes on like that for quite a while and And then then, occupying the space where the frog had been was a frog fantastic said rincewind (laughs) really amazing a frog frog magically transformed (laughs) into a frog wondrous (laughs) uh and then turns out it wasn't the frog doing the magic it was a lady who was standing behind them who was some sort of goddess Ooh, which uh, there is at least a named female character who is wearing clothes. The concept of the lady here, whose name we're not allowed to speak because she'll disappear. Yes. Which I quite like because that's a nice play on kind of just superstition in general, isn't it? Um, instead of a deity, it's like a... Especially superstitions around luck, which... Uh... But we're not on the Discworld. You we like it if I yell Macbeth at you? <gasps> Hot potato off the doors, black to take events! Ah! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> to be fair, that was a thespian doing a Blackadder reference. Now we quite like it when someone says Macbeth, so we can do the Blackadder reference. <laughs> Lady uh, Luck has um, popped in. Yep, that's nice of her. She's hanging out. She's hanging um, out. And we get we, Sorry, you go. Oh, sorry, I'm talking over you. Um, I talked bring, over you first. You go, you go. Throw things at me. Um, we get another brief reference to the fact that the gods don't like atheists on the disc because yeah. they're very present and we get a nice bit of background into fate and the lady and how she is worshipped on the how they are worshipped or not worshipped on the disc yeah and they're like the the more chilling um oh, ethereal's not the word because obviously all of them are ethereal but like the, the uh they're actually mm. scary and powerful and yeah they're not just the kind of childish thunderbolt throwing lot that the rest of the gods are they? yeah like no one's really that concerned about blind io and offla the crocodile god because they just need a few white yeah. war and sacrifice yeah like fate, fate's worshippers are weird and gaunt and scary and lady luck is not really worshipped because that's the opposite of what she does <laughs> so yeah. she's like a, a, a an opposite of a god isn't she she's, she's a pink elephant what's that well, no, like, so you know when you say to someone, like, don't think about a pink elephant, and then ah. immediately all you can picture is a pink elephant? Yeah. She's like that. Like, if oh, you cool, think yeah. of her and ask for her, she's not going to come. You've got to not be looking and let her sneak up on you. Yeah. Which is it's fun. It says a lot about how luck and superstition tend to work for people. Yeah. That would mean that gambling on the Discworld would be extremely difficult, wouldn't it? Because you, you can't help but hope for luck if you're gambling. Yeah. But the more you want it, the less likely you are to get it, because yeah. you're... Oh man, that would only increase economic in- inequality. But you'd be more. But I think, it, to a certain extent, it is true of gambling. The more focused you are on a goal, and the more you feel that you need the luck because things are going badly for you, the more you notice the negatives, and it feels like everything is going worse. Whereas if it's casual and you're not desperate for the luck because you're just having a bit of fun with it, you notice the positives because it's something you're doing to have fun. Like with superstition, yeah. how. Um, you can go through a day with exactly the same thing of events, but if you're a superstitious person and say you walked under a ladder at some point that day, you'll notice the negative events more. Mm-hmm. Whereas if uh, you, I don't know, found a four-leaf clover or your lucky number was mentioned in something, yeah. you'll notice the positive events more. Uh, okay, so it's the kind of thing that's played on by like horoscopes and things like that as well, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Okay. It's basic psychology of superstition. Yeah. Cool. Sorry, I get. I, I like reading about why largely lots of supernatural things are 
can be explained by the human brain That's being right. really quite cool. The human brain really is cool, though, isn't oh, it? Human brain's awesome. Yeah. Love the human Glad brain. Glad I've got one. Yeah, no, I, I, I must look, take, take better care of mine. Limited edition. Yeah. Not exactly mint condition, but... <laughs> <laughs> Slightly battered and bruised around the edges. Look, if you can't make your own serotonin, stopport is fine. <laughs> Just as well. <laughs> dopamine in this economy. <laughs> Thank God for the NHS, man. My dopamine would be super expensive in another country. Right. Um... Anyway, so uh, the lady is here to provide a handy bit of exposition, which is nice of her. They are going to send a ship off the edge of the world to find out whether Great Arturian is male or female. Which is something apparently at the top of everybody's minds. No apparent reason. Oh no, because no. it'll change what the journey is all about, isn't it? Yeah, it's whether also if it meets another turtle, it's going to uh, try and get its in the way or not. Yeah, I suppose actually that would matter quite a lot if you were on its back. Yes. <laughs> I feel like that could upset the Oh, the four discs on the back of the female turtles. Oh. Oh, dear. Well, it might be all right. Hmm. Maybe they've got ways. Is I, it? They never really go into the actual mechanics of astrochelonian mating. No. It's probably for the best. I also don't really know how turtles fuck. Have you ever heard turtles? Yeah, no, I have. Yeah. I am imagine that on a universe scale. I, I imitate that noise a lot in the kitchen. Oh, no. Do it. Right, sorry, this is not a podcast about turtle sex noises. I mean, it's more about turtle sex noises than it is a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. Turtle sex Um, noises, name of my indie band. (laughs) Um. So, the lady explains that uh, the arch astronomer of Krull has made a bargain with fate. Mm-hmm. to sacrifice two flower and win because fate's really sick of them. He's gone proper into winning this game, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, this is basically fate having a tantrum over his D&D game, which is <laughs> cute. And it, it, it turned out, anyway, that Lady Luck was riding in the frog for no apparent reason. <laughs> she was riding in the frog. Rincewind saved the frog. She yeah. now wants to give them a chance, which the chance equates to that floating wine bottle that Rincewind through earlier, yeah. finally losing its magical field and dropping, just as some guards come in, which Rin. gives Rincewind and Two Flower away to escape. And then we go to Death's Garden. Yeah, kind of a weird cutaway to somewhere I wouldn't have actually. I completely. I, I, I wouldn't have. I, yeah, if you'd asked me, I wouldn't have said we went to Death's Garden this quickly. Yeah, I completely forgot we went to it in this book because we get to eventually see Death's house and his entire domain. But yeah, we, get, we, we get, get a tour. <laughs> yeah, we get a lovely tour. But at the moment, it's just Death in his garden, sharpening his scythe, ignoring fate, who's having a tantrum. Yeah. So now we're in Death's garden, which is silent and dim. And swish went the stone as death hummed a dirge and tapped one bony foot on the frosty flagstones. That's a lovely little... Isn't it? That's a beautiful bit of rhythm. Lovely bit of rhythm there. And the quietness and the sobriety of the moment is kind of broken into by this man-child fate. <laughs> man-child deity storming in yeah. going, I want to die! Um, because basically when death won't go and kill them at fate's demand stamps his foot and they will die he says and vanishes in a sheet of blue fire and death nods to himself continues his work 
because he's kind of chilled out a bit now. Yeah, he's sort of went, well, I mean, they're going to die eventually. Why bother chasing them? They're yeah. going to end up coming here, which is nice. Yeah, I feel like this moment is probably, weirdly enough, in the first book, the turning point which makes death in the rest of the books, which is his, what will be, will be. Yeah. And There's I will be eventually. Yeah. <laughs> There's a nice little line about him not being an unkind master to his horse. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's an implication that he can't. Death can't be all bad. He's nice to his horse. Um, and yes, Rincewind and Two Flower have, during their escape, walked into a ring that contained the whole universe. Yeah. Um, Which is actually an astrolabe. Made out of jewels and wires, and there's sketches of the turtle, and there are, of course, Discord spacesuits. They've escaped from the cell into clearly some kind of astronaut headquarters. Yes. Um,. I do like there's also a um, Star Trek reference here. Whoever would be wearing those suits, for instance, decided would be expecting to boldly go where no man, other than the occasional luckless sailor who didn't really count, had boldly gone before. Is that a quote from Star Trek? You boldly go where no one's gone before. I yeah. think that's Star Trek. Oh, okay. I thought it was like from, from like NASA. <laughs> At this point, it's kind of... Rincewind is having a horrible premonition. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's a fatalistic, I'm going to end up in one of those suits. And... They beat up a couple of astronauts and put the suits on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of... Rincewin has a vague idea of the trajectory of his life now. And it is that if you can think of a horrible thing that could obviously happen in this situation, it will happen. Which in itself is a kind of... Not, not just a fantasy trope, but just a fiction trope, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, if you find yourself in a room with spacesuits in it and you're that look about the right thing. size for your protagonists then guess what's going to happen I, again it's like um, Two Flowers meta commentary of someone will turn up it'll be alright it's the yeah. Rincewind version of that meta commentary of of someone. course something is going to go horribly wrong yeah. for me yeah that's, that's it, what it? Yeah. has to happen <laughs> for the story next yeah and both of those things are true interestingly yes it's very sweet so the two astronauts come in to their headquarters where Rincewind and Two Flower are hanging out and Rincewind and Two Flower beat up the Kellanauts, not yeah. astronauts, and Two Flower, as Rincewind predicted, says, well, someone's going to be expecting these two men to go out in these suits any minute now. I'm imagining this kind of tone of voice. Yeah, <laughs> and Rincewind's sort of going to, I knew I was going, I'm wearing them. And so they do. Yeah, they put on the suits, they put and the suits. We go back to the arch. Yep, the arch astronomer is slightly annoyed that... Um, they seem to have lost the sacrifices, but they need to launch their ship to go and have a look at Greater Tuin's genitals. <laughs> Weird. At which point, of course, this is the big climaxy moment. All the action's coming to a head. So Rinsman and Two Flower have got the suits on and they're coming towards this space. Mm -hmm. A big monster is coming, which of course turns out to be the luggage. And their beautiful fish ship is ready to take off. Um... So the Kalanauts approach the ship. Uh, the luggage, which is covered in seaweed at the moment, appears. Everyone attacks it with magic, which does not go well. No. Um, as it happens, sapient pair would. Not that vulnerable to magic. But because there are so many swords, uh, so many spells flying around. Not Probably swords. also sword, let's be honest. <laughs> Shower, there's now just a storm of magic with spells fly feeding off each other. Shower of small lead cubes bounced down through the storm and rolled across the heaving floor. <laughs> Eldritch shapes gibbered beckoned obscenely. Yeah. Um, and then the there's a nice little touch here from uh, Daptilus Golden Eyes that's talking about the the ramp that this fish is, fish spaceship is about to go off of. Um, 
And he designed the launching pad as well as the potent Voyager, which is what the craft is called. We've yes. skipped over that so far. Itself has claimed that this last touch was merely to ensure the ship wouldn't snag as it as it uh, left. But So maybe it was merely coincidental that it would also, because of that little twitch in the track, leap like a salmon and shine theatrically in the sunset in the sunlight before disappearing into the cloud sea. <laughs> and you can just imagine it, can't you? Little and fish going glint and then back in, yeah. in footage somewhere. That's, oh, nice. So while, while all this is happening, the, the two imposters, Kalanauts, yeah. uh, two flying rinsemen come out um, and are discovered, well, not discovered, are recognised as imposters immediately by the arch astronomer, at least, because they are waddling instead of striding. <laughs> and as he starts to try and do a bit of magic at them, the luggage appears. That's when the luggage appears, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. And there's, like, a fight, a magic yeah. fight. A lot of magic is thrown at the luggage. Which doesn't work because it's made of magic wood. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, lovely storm of magic spells feeding off each other while two flower and rinse wind, two flower and rinse wind watch from a slightly sheltered bit just by the launch tower. Yeah, and there's uh, the luggage kind of faces off with the arch astronomer. And I like this kind of bit that the luggage often gets described as having having a face even though it doesn't and somehow you can read its expression even though it doesn't have one and it narrows its eyes at the arch astronomer who's horribly aware that he's doing that even though he doesn't have any eyes and (laughs) and just he takes personification of an object to this ridiculous level (laughs) you can feel this angry suitcase staring at you oh that's it they call uh they call them magicians instead of wizards oh yeah so in this culture they're because also some of them are female. Oh yeah, which is not the case on the disc. Oh, oh the on the um, in in book. book. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, the luggage has brought Tethys the sea troll with him. Yeah. Do we know why? No, I think he just accidentally swallowed him on his way. Yeah. So no. they all go and hide in the ship, which of course now starts going off the edge of the world. So we've got two flower, rinse wind the water troll who did rescue them but then also did sell them into slavery and the luggage on a fish which ends up being accidentally at this point propelled off the edge of the well two flowers managed to get into it Rincewind is stuck on the outside of it um, because there's a wonderful yeah he's still on the outside series of events which is yeah this big climax thing of as it's rolling off the edge of the world two flower goes in the hatch on it snaps shut and Rincewind is left stuck outside yeah which I love that uh, Rincewind stood up. There was only one thing left to do now, and he did it. He panicked blindly. <laughs> and it is uh, thrown over the edge of the world. The luggage was obviously on the outside and following along because the luggage jumps off the edge of the world to follow it. Yeah, and I love this leg still pumping determinedly. <laughs> and plunged down into the universe. The end. Except not. Because then there's another ending. Yeah, uh, which is Rincewind is stuck on the rim basically yeah. he wakes up and realises he's caught in some trees and in a little crevice and is hanging off the edge yeah. of the world oh. <laughs> effectively in a tree yeah and then death turns back up except or does he yeah it's not actually death it's uh, one of his minions Scrofula who's been, <laughs> who's been sent to kill Rincewin for him um, of, but no fate would have sent him yeah, I suppose yeah, so. Yeah, fate would have sent him, not death. Because death has uh, had to go and stalk the streets in Pseudopolis. There's a big plague on. Yeah, which, yeah, in reality, this wouldn't have, obviously. I just I just got that, that this would have been fate who sent it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, Scrofula. Which is a type of tuberculosis. I did have to look it up. Yeah, it's what I love. The, uh, what an awful thing to say you love, but the, the, the names of these old 
diseases, which are, are still around, I guess. Like dropsy, there's another yeah. one. Yeah, <laughs> scrofulate dropsy, and well, they're sort of all coming back with people not vaccinated. Vaccinate your kids, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll all get tuberculosis. Scrofula. Black plague. No one dies of scrofula. I've got rights. I'm a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> scrofula accidentally emits that reincarnation might be a thing. Yeah. Ooh. And, uh, yeah, Rincewind falls off the world, which is an excellent cliffhanger for the book to end on. Yeah. It's quite a weird little ending in itself, actually, isn't it? Just that they've got this little epilogue which ends up exactly the same way it would have done anyway. Yes. Is it just at this point just driving home the fact that fate is interfering then? or It gives Rincewind a minute to think about it. He's faced death and falling off the edge of the world. And then he's had a good pause to sit in a tree and think about the fact he is falling off the edge of the world before he then actually falls properly off and into the universe. And yet, I have... Because it only happens with these first two, it feels weird for a Discworld book to not end on a resolution and to have this literal cliffhanger. Yeah. Because this one's a two-parter with the light fantastic and you don't get two-parters in the Discworld series. Sorry, first-time readers. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, you get some kind of resolution at least, don't you? I mean, Pratchett's not known for wrapping everything up tightly with a little bow. No, but you have an ending. Yeah. Whereas this is, yeah, a big cliffhanger to go into the next book. Yeah, which the, really... the, the ending passage as we read the beginning is the whole creation was waiting for Rincewind to drop in he did so there didn't seem to be any alternative the end, <laughs> the end. which is lovely of course yeah. Um, and then yeah so next is The Light Fantastic which is how much do you remember about The Light Fantastic because we, we, we have managed to hold off from actually reading it yeah, yes, and it has been it's been years since I reread it. It must be even longer since you reread it cause... I actually reread it really recently. Oh, you did? Oh, uh, on the plane. Did, yeah, because it happened to be one of the ones I had on Kindle. Even having reread it recently, I don't remember a lot of details. That's interesting. I remember certain characters that are getting introduced and I'm really excited for us to all meet them together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there are some details from it that weirdly, despite the fact I have read it as the book much more recently than I've seen the TV adaptation. I remember more the TV adaptation's version of events. Uh, see, this is why I'm glad I haven't watched the TV adaptation. I, I am. I full, I'm very suggestible. I'm glad I have for The Colour of Magic and Light Fantastic just because I didn't care for them so much as books and I like what they... Because The Colour of Magic is split into these four novellas mm-hmm. and there's not a clear thread, it brings threads from The Light Fantastic to the beginning of Colour of Magic and spreads them through... So it's one long, cohesive narrative yeah. that still gets to have this cliffhanger in the middle of falling off the edge of the world. And did they just, do, Was it a two-parter? Yeah. yeah. It was like two feature-length things, effectively. It was like done as a mini-series. Yeah. Um, but yeah. That's but, interesting. So in... Yeah, I guess, what do you think of the book overall? In Colour of Magic? Yeah. It was really nice going back to this one and reading it and actually taking notes and looking at analysis and discussion of it. That makes me sound like a wanker. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've never cared for the first two books so much, and it's rare I recommend starting with the first books when I recommend the Discworld books to someone. Yeah. And I still think my criticisms still stand. I think they're not the great books they're going to become. They're choppy. It's choppy and not as easy to follow story-wise. The whole middle section kind of drags a bit, especially the Belshammeroth bit. Yeah. But it's a lot better than I remember, and I enjoyed it a lot more this time. And I'm sl- 
And do you think that's because you were forced to focus on it? Yeah, I think it's because I had to focus a bit more and I couldn't, and I picked up a lot of little details I've missed. Mm. Like I missed uh, the canard thing and some of the sort of little details in the description about Lady. Yeah. And it's more fun because I know where it's all going. Yeah. So it's quite exciting to be at the start of the journey. (laughs) What about you? I wish I'd set aside more time for it because although it did take me longer than it would usually because I was writing all the notes and things, I I felt like I was completing a homework assignment by the end because I the, 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 the third part basically I tried to finish in the same time I would read it normally, ah, yeah. um, which, which was a bit of an annoyance, but uh, that's my fault because I'm terrible with time management. <laughs> but the, honestly, it's, I'm almost almost the opposite to you. I think I enjoyed it less. Really? Than I did the, f- the the certainly the first time I read it, but I was a kid then, and possibly the last time I read it, which was a few years ago. And I think that's because it is such a choppy book. There isn't really this thread that goes through it that would make it more cohesive. And when I read it before, I think I read it so quickly that it didn't matter. It kind of went unseen, unseen, unseen. And yeah. that was okay. Or it's now I'm because I'm trying to find these connections and trying to analyze it, it kind of stood out to me more. That it is sort of choppy and disconnected. Yeah, and and yeah, and the fact that it dragged in the middle of it, like, was more important because we were trying to talk about it and I was trying to make like interesting notes throughout. And there were interesting notes to be had throughout, but they weren't always tied to very interesting plot points. Yeah. Um like the whole the whole Wormberg bit. I thought was worse than the whole Belshamroth bit. I think I'm not a big fan of either bit, to be honest. I, I dislike the Belshamroth bit more because it's so disconnected. Like he's in a tree, and then he's like the tree didn't need to be there. The whole dry yeah, thing. that's it. That was just yeah. there to be a cool visual idea more than I think it was part of the story. Yeah, because it wasn't really about the story so much it's about making fun of fantasy tropes and that was a fun yeah. fantasy thing to make fun of I think from the light fantastic you start getting more cohesive narrative though yeah I'm really looking forward to the light fantastic because I remember that being my favourite of the two anyway yeah and um, and as, as, as you say it's it's a book in itself rather than four little books I'm right yeah 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 um, <laughs> but yeah no I'm, and I sound like I'm being really critical here but I still love this book because it's by my favourite author and it's got one of my favourite characters of all time in it. But I think now rereading it as somebody who has analysed other stuff as well, maybe, and because I'm I'm making a concerted effort to learn about like the structures of stories and And also reading it with the sort of background knowledge of you know how good the later books can get and that this is not obviously its best. As yeah. an introduction to the Discworld, though, it perfectly serves its purpose. It absolutely does. And at the same time as being a bit annoyed by the overall lack of cohesion, having to focus on it like this is, as you, I, I got those moments of, oh, well, that was a fantastic paragraph, or, oh, that was really cleverly done, yeah. or, hey, look at that reference, or, is this trivia all in your head? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, it's given me a new yeah. appreciation for it, for sure. It was really cool. And, and and it was written, like, a few hundred words at a time while he was still working full-time. And, like... Yeah. And that bearing that in mind is astounding, if, if it wasn't already. And, yeah. 
I enjoyed it. I didn't. I I'm fully expecting that I did not enjoy that nearly as much as I will a lot of the ones that are upcoming. Yeah. Um. There are, there are a few, which I might struggle through as we hinted at. Eric might be a bit difficult, although, at least it's short. Yeah. And <laughs> it sounds so mean because again, it's a good book, but it's like. It's just not the best. Yeah, it's, it's compared to all the other Pratchett books. Like, the bar's so high. <laughs> yeah. But also, it's going to be fun because there are some books, definitely, that you like a lot more or that I like a lot more or that we For disagree sure. on. Yeah, and when we, get to the, when we get to these books that have more kind of specific themes to them, there are some things that are just more relevant to my life or to yours or yeah. to, to our interest subsets and, like... The areas of Twitter we spend too much time in and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, there's some fun there's some fun things to come, but we won't get too ahead of ourselves. No, it won't. Because but we're only on the first book. All in all, I enjoyed it not as much as I did the last time I read it and not as much as I'm expecting to enjoy the like Fantastic, but oh, just Pratchett in it, I'm not gonna complain like I <laughs> No, we are doing this because we quite like these yeah. books, really. So I think, yeah, I have decided I'm going to read The Light Fantastic on the Kindle because I got the paperwork for my birthday. Nice. Um, and A, I like I like it. I like it a lot. I like reading on it. I want to. And B, I want to have a go at this kind of the, the digital note-taking and indexing rather than using this fairly tatty... Paperback system. Yeah. <laughs> these poor post-it notes. I will, at least for The Light Fantastic, be sticking to the paperback system mm-hmm. if I am analysing things, taking notes, or doing anything that really involves writing things down in any way. I like to do it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. Yeah, so Considering both of us grew have... up with computers yeah, yeah, and have yeah. consistently used them. But no, mm. ideas come out of my brain better with a pen. It's mm. nice. Yes. All right, then. Well, it is the end of this book. It is the end of this book, so we're going to... For the take... beginning of a whole new journey. All right, David Didn't Attenborough. Didn't you like that? Oh, no, if it was David Attenborough, I'd also remind you that the ice caps are melting, so... If I was going to have a mastermind subject, it would yeah. be Discworld. I think they've stopped allowing people doing it on Discworld because too many people requested to. Oh, do they? All right, now I'm fucked. I know nothing about anything else. I'm not going on mastermind. I reckon I could do Buffy the Vampire Slayer. As a mastermind specialist subject. <laughs> <laughs> just, that was just apropos of nothing. <laughs>